I would like to invite you to open up God's Word to the book of Romans, as you see in our order of worship and on the board. The book of Romans, chapter 4. Chapter 4, as many of you know, I uh, had the privilege to preach three messages out of the book of Romans, chapter 4, this week at the uh, pastor's conference in India in cooperation with Central Baptist Church and Pastor Sukumar. And so this is where my heart and my head has been all week. And uh, I hope that you will see that as we are going to step away from our verse-by-verse study and teaching through the book of Hebrews, where we're at right now in chapter 8, that Romans chapter 4 really does in many ways supplement what we've been learning there. And so I hope that you will be blessed by what we have for us today in Romans chapter 4. So if you're there in your Bibles, look with me here at Romans chapter 4 as we seek to learn from the Lord. God's Word says, What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, 
It is a faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only, which is of the law, but to that also, which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom he believed even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He, referring to Abraham, still staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, it's obvious, is it not, in your order of worship, why we entitled today's study and message, Justification by Faith. The whole of the epistle, the letter, we say, that was written to the early church gathered in Rome, is emphasizing this theme. How a man, woman, boy, or girl can be justified before a holy God. That's the theme that runs all through the letter. We are landing today in Romans chapter 4. And it's always helpful for you to just jump in to figure out where we're at here because this letter was a progressive letter. Chapter 1 largely was dealing with how all Gentiles who didn't have the law They didn't have circumcision. They didn't have the ceremonial law. How they were guilty as sinners before a holy God. And then Paul picks up the argument in chapter 2, well into chapter 3, describing how even the Jews, the ethnic Jews who had the law, the Mosaic law, they had the ceremonial law, and they most definitely had circumcision, how they were guilty as sinners before God. And then he come to this verse, you all know it very well, in verse, uh, verse 10 in chapter 3, he says, As it is written, there is none then that are righteous. No, not one. A.J. pointed to it in his reading in the book of Acts. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He was a Jew of the Jew, Philippians. The letter to Philippians describes him. From the tribe of Benjamin. And when he said that in chapter 3, verse 10, outlining how Gentiles and Jews both equally were on the level playing ground of being sinners, condemned by their own transgressions against a holy God, there is none not righteous, no, not one. Listen to this. I discovered this in my studies of this. 
He's quoting from Psalms, and it's in Psalms from two different places. Psalms 14 verses 1 through 3 uses that language in connection with the Jews. So it was used there to say, you, none of you are righteous, no, not one, in connection with the Jews to Jehovah God. But then in Psalms 53, 1 through 3, it's used also, but in that context, it's demonstrating the pagans who did not have Jehovah as their God, their covenant God, but only knew God as Elohim, the one creator. The pagans, they themselves too, none of them were righteous, no, not one. And do you see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures? There through the psalmist who wrote Psalms 14 and then Psalms 53. Now here in Romans chapter 3, Paul laying out the same ancient gospel. All men need a Savior. They all need forgiveness. None are righteous. No, not one. But he doesn't just leave them there coming up to chapter 4. He says at the end of chapter 3, after demonstrating all mankind need a Savior, he, he, he says in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, For all I have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the doctrine of the gospel is laid out in its most systematic and explanatory manner in the book of Romans. Beloved, in the book of Romans, we have the most exhaustive treatment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul preached, which Peter preached, which all of the apostles preached, which is the gospel that the Christian church has been handed and is responsible to guard, to proclaim, and to ensure it's kept pure from generation to generation. What a blessed gift we have in the book of Romans. That summary statement that Jew, ethnic Jew, ethnic Gentile, all mankind, none righteous, no not one, may be justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into chapter 4 we're at today. And you'll notice in chapter 4 what he's doing is he's building on this sermonic argument He's like a lawyer in a courtroom and he's demonstrating to those in Rome, you know, none of you guys are righteous. No, not one. Oh, the Jews who you know about and you've heard about? Well, guess what? None of them are righteous either. No, not one. All need to be forgiven and redeemed by God's only Messiah, promised begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And now he's going to say in chapter 4, this isn't anything new with me. He's going to say, this is the ancient gospel. And he does so by immediately bringing into his argument Abraham and David. And this is what we're going to look at first. Justification and the ancient patriarch, verses 1 through 8. Here the inspired apostle Paul now uses these two Old Testament believers, Abraham and David, to help demonstrate that biblical justification, that is, how it is a sinful man, woman, boy or girl, a sinful person can be made right with their creator God, is but by grace alone, through faith alone, the ancient gospel. Paul was not preaching a new gospel. Paul was not being a clever man who wanted to uh, gather a following after himself as a new 
uh, cult leader or religious sect. No, he's doing this purposefully, you see, to say this is the one true gospel that's been all throughout redemptive history. And he's going to go as far back as Abraham. And notice with me something that this ancient gospel does, beloved, in verses 1 and 2. The ancient gospel of biblical justification is intended to humble the pride of men. Look at verse 2. If Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof reason to glory, but not before God. Not before God. Friends, what Paul does immediately in reaching back to Abraham and beginning to walk through an understanding of the gospel of Christ and understanding how someone is made right with God is he wants to immediately strip away from his listeners anything that they can contribute to why God ought to accept them. The biblical doctrine of justification, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's rightly proclaimed, immediately shuts a man alone in the courtroom of a thrice holy God. And it places him there before this holy God. And it puts him on the pedestal to say, tell God why you ought to be accepted to go into heaven. By what works, by what things you have done. You see, biblical justification, when it's rightly preached, it places a person in that courtroom before the Creator. And their conscience ought to be screaming to them a long host and list of things that they have done as reasons why they ought not to be let in to eternal bliss and enjoy the imminent light from their Creator. But Paul wants to outline here Biblical justification, the true gospel of the Christian church, is not anything that a man can add by his works to why he will be accepted for the pardon and the forgiveness of his sins. Do you see it in the text? Abraham, he's saying, will not be able to stand before God based on his own works, whereof to glory, not before God. This is a common theme Throughout the Apostle Paul's letters, you know the verse very well in Ephesians 2 where he says the same thing. He says, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it, grace, is a gift of God, not of your works. Why? So that you can boast. When a person is standing before the imminent, penetrating light of God Himself, There is no glory in that courtroom on that day. There was no glory tolerated in that meeting at that time except for one. And it's the one true living God's glory. No man will be boasting at that time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.29 that no flesh should glory in his presence. Well then, if verse number 2 the beginning of this understanding of biblical justification, this beginning of this understanding of the gospel we are to preach as Christians, if verse number 2 removes all that Abraham or any man could, could offer to God as a reason for their justification, then what was it? What was it that justified Abraham? Well, verse 3 tells us what it was. Abraham believed God, and it, it was counted unto him for righteousness. Paul here is pointing back to the Old Testament in Genesis 15.6 and he draws our attention that Abraham's faith his faith was the grounds for his justification. 
Not what he could do, but it was his faith. And there's something very important for us to notice here, church. You see, in this verse, the subject is Abraham. The object now in verse number 3 is Abraham's faith. And to this, now we turn our attention and consider what was the nature of Abraham's faith? Because verse 3 is very clear. It was the grounds for his justification. Well, it doesn't take very long to begin to read in the chronicles of history, in the story, the narrative of Abraham's life to recognize that the nature of Abraham's faith wasn't perfect, was it? Immediately, remember in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, He gives Abraham believing faith, justifying faith to trust in Him as the one true living God, that a promised seed through Him would come to conquer sin and remove the iniquities of man and cover, their, and cover them under the righteousness of a promised Messiah. After that, Abraham picks up the camp He detaches himself from all that he ever knew. He leaves Haran, the protective protective guardianship of his father, Terah. He takes all of his wealth, all of his belongings, everything. He travels over 500 miles to a land that he did not know, Canaan. He gets there being obedient to God. And what does he find in Genesis 12? He finds a drought. A drought. Now think of the implications of this. This jeopardizes all that he owned, all of his material wealth. It jeopardized the health of his family. It jeopardized his own life. It seems to be something that could even jeopardize the very promise that God put before him that through him a seed would come to remove sin and and, and deliver him from sin and, and save all the nations of mankind. And he gets there, Eddie, and there's a drought. And what does he do? Does he say, you know what, we're just going to dig a well anyways? No, we know the story. He says, guys, we need to go down to Egypt because this doesn't look good. And then what does he do when he gets to Egypt? Well, it doesn't take long. He sees there that his own life's going to be threatened because how beautiful Sarah is. And what's he tell Sarah? Hey, Sarah, say that you're really my sister so that they won't come after me and kill me so that they can have you, a beautiful woman. And this is a repeated pattern we see in Abraham's life. The nature of Abraham's life, my point is, was not clean and perfect. It wasn't always consistently strong. And so we come back to verse 3. And I ask you this question. Knowing the imperfect nature of Abraham's faith, was it that that made him righteous? Was it... uh, Abraham's imperfect faith that at times in face of difficult circumstances and consequences made really wrong decisions? Was it that sort of faith that made him righteous? No, it wasn't. And this is exactly and precisely why when we look at the nature of Abraham's faith, we can learn much. It wasn't wasn't Abraham's nature of faith that saved him. It was the object of Abraham's faith. What saved him? How do I know that? Well, look at your Bibles at chapter 3. Just flip back one page to verse 21. The Bible tells us this is the case. The righteousness, it says of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe. You see, dear friends, it was the object of Abraham's faith in the Messiah, the promised Messiah, then 
And we know his name now. Jesus Christ is how he was made righteous. Not because the, perfect of his faith, the perfectness of his faith, but that which was the object of his faith. The Messiah. I know what you're perhaps thinking right now, but Pastor Doug, Jesus Christ didn't come until 2,000 years after Abraham. How, how would Abraham had faith in him as the object that made him righteous being described in verse 3? Well, to that I would answer, remember our Lord Jesus taught us in John 8.56 when he said, speaking to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And Jesus says, Abraham saw it. He understood it, the Greek means. He comprehended my day. So in some way, in some form, Abraham very clearly understood that justification, his righteousness, could only be given to him through the penal substitutionary sacrifice of a Messiah that someday would come. This is the ancient gospel. This is the ancient gospel that Abraham believed, he taught, and he would have preached. Yes, in shadowy forms. Yes, not having all the clarity. That would come with redemptive history, which now moves us to verses 4 and 5. Paul is arguing that if justification was by any works, that would mean God owes wages due for the work performed. However, biblical justification teaches that God shows kindness to ill-deserving sinners. Not for any work that they've earned, but because He is a merciful and He is a gracious God. And now moving forward in redemptive history, what Paul does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in this argument he's presenting, is he comes to King David. In verses 6 through 8. Now, what we have here in verses 6 and 8 is a quotation of Psalms 32, verses 1 through 2. And what's being shown here is that, like Abraham, David also believed that a man was only justified by the Lord's grace and not his doing. And so, whereas Abraham comes 860 years before David, here we have David still holding the torch of the one true gospel. Your only hope of being made right before God is to thrust yourself upon His mercy seat. And again, since we were just looking at Abraham, think of the nature of David's faith. Think of the many failures of David. But when the prophet Nathan sent by God to point the accusation at David for the murder and the treachery that he had committed, what did David do? Did he have a posture? No, not me. No, we know what happened. God blessed him with repentance, didn't he? And David come to the mercy seat of God. He cast himself and all of his iniquities and sins before God's mercy. Now what happens is there's a shift in chapter 4. You may have noticed it. The Apostle Paul wants to, after using Abraham and David, he wants to now further clarify the separation of justification from works. And he's going to do that by using circumcision. And this is really what he's doing here in verses 9 through 17. And so I would, as we're entering into verse 9, I would kind of uh, shift our thinking of justification in the life and the ministry of the patriarchs to come and to consider now justification independent of works. And in this case, circumcision specifically. Look at verse 9 with me. 
Paul asked the question, when was faith counted to Abraham for righteousness? Was it before circumcision, this good, obedient act of Abraham? Or was it after? Well, in verse 10, he answers the question, doesn't he? He says, it was before Abraham obeyed the Lord in that good, obedient act. And this is a confirmation of Genesis 17.24. But we read there and we learn that Abraham was 99 years old when he obeyed the Lord in this good deed of circumcision, this command of God to be circumcised. Now, beloved, this is significant because Abraham began to be called into this journey as a pilgrim in God's service to be chosen, not because there was anything special in him. He was a moon worshiper over in Iran with his family and his father, but to be used for God's purposes and God's glory at the age of 75. So here, 15 years later, he obeys in circumcision. And the point that Paul is making here is that Abraham was justified prior to the obedience of circumcision. Abraham was justified by saving faith in the object of the Messiah, which was revealed to him through the power of the Holy Spirit in a mysterious way, John 8.56, before he ever performed the act, the work, the obedience of circumcision. It's always important for us to remember, church, biblical justification, salvation by grace alone through faith alone is always and fundamentally separate from our obedience, our keeping of the law, our keeping of the rules. Fundamentally, that's what's being stressed here. In verse 11, Paul goes on now to identify, interestingly, that circumcision is called a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith that Abraham possessed. Now, this is important. Because what was it, as we're going to see in a moment, Abraham was promised by God. You will be an heir of the world. All the nations through you will be blessed through your seed that I shall give you. And he gives him circumcision. And it's called a sign and a seal. In the Greek, the word sign there literally means an identifying mark. Here's the wisdom of God in using this rather peculiar way of constantly keeping before Abraham and his descendants the truth that you need to be forgiven of your iniquities. And there's only one way you can be forgiven of your iniquities, and that's by coming to me with a a contrite, repentant, and sincere heart wanting to have forgiveness. The circumcision sign on the male reproductive organ outwardly was a sign. Physically, it was a marking. And what it denoted was that everyone that was connected with Abraham as one of his descendants, they were entitled to the blessing, the physical blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And there were many of those. God in Genesis, beginning in Genesis 12, going all the way to 17, he's promising Abraham all these blessings in the land of Canaan, all of these physical blessings, this land which comes with it prosperity, which comes with it all sorts of different agricultural you know, things of nature. And that outward mark 
It entitled you to those physical blessings as you were connected with Father Abraham. But there was something more importantly connected with circumcision. And Paul is interpreting that for us here in Romans chapter 4. And he's showing us the dual nature of circumcision. You could say the dichotomy that exists in this peculiar act that God gave Abraham. It was also a seal, the text says. Well, you look at the Greek word seal. And it carries with it not the idea of preservation of something. Not the idea of you put something in a mason jar and you can it and you seal it. It carries with it the idea of an insignia. A stamp of a ring on hot wax. And that that insignia, that sign on that seal, what does that point to? It points to something outside of the seal. It points to the authority. It points to the promise, you see, that God gave Abraham that someday this would come, that there would be a Messiah that's going to come, shed blood. And you think about how circumcision was this gruesome graphic act, right? That shed blood, that was a constant reminder to them that we need a Messiah. We need to be covered for the iniquities of our sins. Oh, that we would have faith, that we would have the hope that Abraham had in that promise. And so circumcision in its dual nature, served that function. He goes on and further demonstrates that Abraham was the father of all believers, whether they had this sign of circumcision or not. This is what he does in verses 11 and 16. And what's important for us, I think, is we see the Apostle Paul interpreting for us, the Old Testament, specifically Genesis 17.5. In Genesis 17.5, we read these words. God speaking to Abraham, the promise. Because the promise is what's coming into focus now from verses 11 through 17. God said this to Abraham, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And we have to take special note here of what's being done. Paul's giving clarity to Genesis 17. He's given us an interpretation of Genesis 17. And as students of the Holy Scripture, when the New Testament is interpreting and giving clarity to the Old Testament, we want to take notice. Failure to take notice of the clarity that the New Testament gives us about these things in the Old Testament will lead us to confuse certain fundamental things. And can you not see the wisdom here? of God and what he's doing in the teaching of Paul in connection with circumcision. God knew that someday the descendants of Abraham would glory more in their physical connection with Abraham than they would in their spiritual connection with Abraham. And to humble their pride, this is the descendants of Abraham, the ethnic Jew, God, you see here, justified Abraham before he ever established the covenant with Abraham which come with it, the sign of circumcision, which was their connection to Abraham physically by birth. The effect of this, in other words, is that none of Abraham's descendants could ever claim that they were righteous before God by merely physical birth. That they were salvifically connected, that they were righteous, really accepted by God just because they had an outward sign of circumcision. None can claim that they are righteous by keeping the law or being obedient to it. No, they couldn't. 
They could only do it by possessing the faith which Abraham had, which was what the circumcision, the act of circumcision as a seal pointed to. Believers today in Jesus Christ can truly say that they are the children of Father Abraham, even though they are ethnically Gentiles. This is how the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, 5 is being fulfilled now. This is how, in Paul's argument, it is fulfilled. Beginning in verse 13, Paul further clarifies the foundation that this promise of Abraham being the heir of the world, it has at its foundation this gospel of faith alone by grace alone. Abraham cannot be the father of the world. He cannot be the heir of the nations if it's not through salvation, justification by faith alone, through grace alone. And really the logic of Paul's argumentation is simple and it's refreshingly straightforward. In verses 14 and 15, he teaches that if the promise to Abraham could be fulfilled by law keeping, then faith, it would be made useless. It would be made void. But how? Well, he tells us in two ways. Look at verse 15. Here's how faith would be made void. This is how the promise of him being the heir of many nations would not come about. Because verse 15 says that the law brings upon wrath. Why is it it brings upon wrath? Because what the law does is it exposes the heart and the sins of men. This is the reason for the law. This was the whole purpose for the Mosaic law. To constantly show them as a taskmaster, Paul teaches in Galatians, that they are guilty. Used this way, the law is a good thing. That's its intended purpose. Paul teaches this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. But what Paul's saying here in connection to the promise of Abraham being the father of all the nations is that the law cannot give new life. The law cannot make one's conscience pure, at rest, at peace. It cannot do that. And so therefore, justification... Salvation, being a child of Abraham, him being therefore the heir of the world, it cannot come by law keeping. But then he says, secondly, as a point of logic in verse 16, notice, he teaches that if the promise to Abraham was given by the law, that would exclude all those who were outside of Israel, ethnic Jews, who didn't have the law. He's, after all, writing this letter to a church in Rome who largely were Gentiles, but we do know because of his stress on unity in the church, there were Jews there as well, and they needed to work out the secondary issues in their personal lives about meats and things of that nature. But he's writing, you see here, to a community has both Jews and Gentiles. And as another point of logic, he says, how could the promise of Abraham being a father to all the world, and through him the seed would come that would bless all the nations, How could that be true if it comes through the law? Because the ethnic Jews, they didn't even have the law. So what is he teaching there? Well, he's teaching the conclusion that we see in verse 16. The conclusion of the matter is clear according to the Apostle Paul. The promise of God of justification, the promise of God to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world is a faith that it might be by grace, verse 16 says. 
to those who have the law, to the Jew, and also to those who don't have the law, that is, the Gentile. And what does this result in? What does this gospel of biblical justification by faith alone and grace alone result in? What we see in verses 18 through 25 as we near the end of our message today is that it results in the fruits of justification. Real fruits. It is very unfortunate, beloved, that in our day and age, there are some who argue that if ministers preach and they teach true biblical justification, salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from your obedience, they believe that if we preach that type of gospel message, which Paul's clearly teaching in an exhaustive way here in Romans chapter 4, that the people in the churches will no longer desire to live godly lives. Sadly, these teachers would have us to preach in such a way that makes the church believe that if they don't live obedient, rule-keeping lives, that they're jeopardizing their standing with God, that they will no longer be justified. And to this, I would reply, Paul clearly teaches here in the book of Romans, succinctly with the example of Abraham and David, that a person's justification is solely based upon the free grace of God, apart from man's works, apart from man's obedience, and we dare not, as the church of Christ, tamper with the purity of this gospel. Friends, we know, do we not, from experience, that if someone who's truly kissed the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, if someone has truly tasted the forgiveness that was given to them and and covered their sins at the foot of Calvary, we know that in their life there will be evidences, fruits of biblical justification. We know this from experience of any of us who have had our hearts circumcised by the penetrating love of God who found us covered in the iniquities of our own sins and point us to the love of His saving Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We tasted it. We've experienced it. We know it. We know, of course, someone who's received true gospel preaching that justification is apart from their works. They welcome this gospel. They love this gospel. They depend all of their soul, all of their life upon this gospel. And we know that there will be not a disdain for living for God. We know that there won't be a lack of evidence in their life. We confess, do we not, as the Bible does, that that evidence at times may be imperceptible, especially initially. We confess when we look at ourselves in the mirror covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that at times our own fruits are not beautiful. That at times our own fruits are not attractive. But nonetheless, in the life of Abraham and in the life of David, do we not see that there will be some fruit there? There will be a grafting into the vine to where there will be repentance and there will be loving thy neighbor as thyself, sacrificing thyself for one another. This is the fruits of biblical justification. It was true in Abraham's life, and it certainly will be true in the life of those who have truly been brought to the cross through the true preaching of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. 
Verse 18 begins by teaching us that the first fruit we see in Abraham's life was hope. Do you see it there? Abraham, who against hope, believed in hope. In the Greek, this carries, this language carries with it this idea. Hope against hope. Like Abraham's believing when it almost seems entirely foolish and ridiculous to continue to believe. That's the fruit of justification. I touched upon Abraham and his experience in Genesis 12. Um, He was there, there was a drought. And there were so many things that would cause Abraham to lose all hope, to give up hope. It's almost ridiculous to continue to keep hoping. What about his wife? He struggled with how can my elderly wife bring forth this promised child which is supposed to be the anchor of the promise that I will be an heir of the world to bring the redemption and the, and the purchase of many sons and daughters into a community where their sins are covered and their iniquities are remembered no more. How can that happen? Sarah, we even know, laughed at the idea. Now men, you know in the church when, you're la- when your wife's laughing at things, it kind of can take the wind out of your sails. When you present this big, you know, monumentous idea, then they kind of like, eh, I don't know, honey, you know. We've been there and done that. That's not going to work. That's not very encouraging. Brothers and sisters, Abraham at everything, verse 18 saying, that would cause him to give up all hope. And then, then his problems go on, do we not know? We didn't even mention his family problems, first of all, with his nephew Lot. You know, their servants began to, you know, have uh, arguments out in the field and, and to keep peace. Abraham does the mature thing and he comes to Lot and he has to separate from a connection of Haran that he only had out in this desert wilderness place. His nephew, would have, who would have given him much encouragement, he loved him. It was a small token of his home still, you see. And he had to separate from him. And then he gets into the mess with having a child with Hagar. No doubt that the text indicates that he really loved Hagar. And he no doubt loved Ishmael. And he sent him off in the wilderness. Why? Because of the promise that the seed would come through Sarah. Abraham had every reason to not have any hope left in him. But what compelled him to show forth again and again and again this fruit of justification? Knowing, having written upon his heart, that he was accepted by God by grace alone through faith alone. It was the free gift of forgiveness that attached Abraham to the journey that God called him to in continued obedience even when it seemed like all things were impossible. But there was another thing that came forth out of Abraham's life as a fruit of justification And we see that in verses 20 and 21, and that is assurance, assurance. The biblical doctrine, we would say to the naysayers, the true gospel of Jesus Christ does not produce a defeated, dead, cold faith in the life of those who believe it. It certainly didn't in Abraham, but it produced in him a preserving and hopeful faith. But we see now that it also produced within him great assurance. Verse 20 says, Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. Abraham, verse 21 says, he was fully persuaded. You see, this is language that's connected to the actions of Abraham. He didn't stagger, Tyler. He kept going. 
He what? He was being fully persuaded. How did that work out? He kept going. You see, friends, hope is distinctively different than assurance. Hope is something that you wish for. Hope is locked up in your mind. The Bible uses the word mind and heart together interchangeably, right? It's the seed of your conscience. That's where hope is. It's locked up in your heart. But assurance, it works itself out, anchored to that hope with your hands and your feet. And this is what we see happens in the life of someone who has been brought into God's family by justification through faith alone and grace alone. In other words, biblical justification. It produces in their heart, in their life, what? Hope that lives its way out in assurance. Abraham had his drought, right? Abraham had his family problems. Abraham had been called to do things that utterly seemed like it went against all possibilities. Why do we think that any one of us in here, the case will be different? Dear believer, you will have your drought. You will have your family problems. You will be called to do things that seem by the world and even to yourself at times to be impossible. You're laboring as a wife. You're laboring as a husband. You're laboring as a son or daughter seeking to please the Lord thy God. And you're asking yourself, oh God, where's the blessing? Lord, where is the blessing that's promised? I don't see it. Why do you keep going then? Why? Because of the hope. Because of the hope of the gospel. And it works its way out in your lips. Not always perfect. In your feet. Not always consistent. In your hands. Not always the best. But you still keep going. Because you are a son and a daughter of Abraham. In union with the Messiah through faith alone. I'll tell you the people who give up. The people that give up, they think that it, they, they do it because they think or they have been sadly mistaken and taught that their acceptance by God is by grace plus something they do. And when they fumble and fail, oh, oh, what a defeat to their motivation. What a defeat to their encouragement. You see, they give up. I can't do it. God, it's impossible. But we hope against hope. We stagger not at the promises of God. How can God might save such a wretch like me? How could he on my worst day being rude to my wife possibly? Uh, uh, you know, speaking rudely or angrily at even another brother in the church who's frustrating me or something. How could he accept me? Only one way. Through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how. And so we come to him and say, oh God, cleanse me. Cover me with the blood of Christ. Help me. I want to continue. I want to move forward in this calling upon my life. Verses 23 and 25, we get closer here. Finally, finally we come and see, don't we? That this ancient truth about justification, it's just not for Abraham. It's just not for David. It's just not for Uriah. It's just not for Jeremiah. But it's also for us. That's what the text says, doesn't it? 
And friends, I want to show you, show you something here. It's verses like these that connect all of redemptive history together for us. We see in verses 23 through 25 in these passages that all of Scripture is telling this one story about how God is going to provide a Messiah to purchase and to cover the sins of His people. It's passages like this that further explain for us what it means to be a child of Abraham. And it's not of birth as we've seen. It's a faith in God. But more specifically, look at verses 24 and 25. It's faith in the Messiah that God provided. We know His name, the Lord Jesus Christ. There were some elect, there were some chosen Jews that believed upon Him. Yes, only in promise form as Messiah. Ah, but you and I on this side of the cross, in this big redemptive story we see here, the ancient gospel, we know His blessed name and it is what? Jesus. It is Jesus. It's passages like this when we get to 24 and 25 where Paul, after having us down in the trenches of the ancient believers, brings it back and says it's also for us. It's passages like this that we see God is faithful. Oh, God is strong. God is mighty. All through the Old Testament, there were times where like it wasn't going to work, especially with this character named Abraham, and especially the character of David, especially upon the weakness of men. But praise be to God. We see patches like this, and we gather today, and we say, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Praise be to the King of the Highest, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's anchored here. You see in verses 24 and 25 to His ministry, His life, His death, His burial. And did you see specifically His resurrection? The justification there that we have is connected intimately with His resurrection. What does this mean? Remember how we are justified. It's faith in the object who is the Messiah. We know His name is Jesus Christ. And that Messiah's crowning act, which gives us even more assurance in the hope that the Holy Spirit is birthed within our hearts, His crowning act, the pinnacle of why we sung, crown Him with many crowns, was what? When death swallowed up His humanity, it could not contain His divinity. And He demonstrated that He was Almighty God. And He rose from the grave. And as we've been learning in Hebrews, dear friends, He's setting on the majesty on high. It was a confirmation that is true. His resurrection was the confirmation that all of this, this whole story, it's true. You see how it is then the confirmation of our justification. Because if he, like any other man, is still laying in the grave, we have no hope, Paul tells us. If he, like any other man, is still laying in the grave, bones are rotting, flesh rotten, eaten by worms, Brother Tyler, we're the fool of fools. But praise be to God, he has risen. He has risen. Amen. And He will come again someday. The end of the story is as almost miraculous as the beginning of the story where the triune God calls everything into existence. And we shall experience it someday, my dear friends. In conclusion, the biblical doctrine of justification can never be accused of producing within a true child of God who has experienced it a cold and a dead faith. 
a faith and a life that's not concerned with living for the glory of the Lord. Rather, as we've seen today from Romans 4, this doctrine of justification, apart from any works that we may add, it produces within the life of God's people great hope that lives its way out in assurance. It did it in the life of Abraham, and it most certainly still has the power today to do it in your life and in your service unto Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. O Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You humbled by the truth of Your Word as You have revealed it through Your inspired Apostle Paul. We thank You, God, that Paul uses the story of Abraham and David through which, Lord, in many ways we see ourselves Lord, possessing a faith at times that is weak, possessing a faith at times that is doubting, possessing a faith many times that is imperfect. But, O God, we give You all of the glory that it is not the nature, it is not the act of our faith, Lord, that makes us right with You, but it is only Your kind, gracious mercy that is granted unto us through Your Son, the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, You know Your sheep. Your Spirit, O Lord, resides within the hearts of every single one. And today, O God, I pray that You will use the truths of what we have learned to encourage the one who is in, perhaps, the valley of despair. Lord, I pray that You would use it to humble perhaps one who is in the plains, O God, of presumption. Help us, O Lord, to walk that middle path. Help us to be in this journey of following Thy Son Jesus, carrying our cross, faithful unto the very end. We are weak, but You are mighty. Lord, we are feeble, but You are strong. We pray, O God, that Your Spirit would enable us to carry and confess Christ unto the very end. We ask all these things in His blessed name. Amen.